Hey, and welcome to the Six Minute Mile podcast. I'm David LaValle, and we are very excited to share our conversation with one of the most decorated distance runners in American history, Dina Castor. She won a bronze medal at the Athens Olympics in 2004 and followed that up by winning Chicago in 2005 and London in 2006. Her 219 at London still stands as the American marathon record more than 14 years later. But more interesting than her resume is her approach to the mental and emotional part of an athlete's success. Despite being a nine-time All-American at the University of Arkansas, Dina almost quit running entirely after graduation to become a baker. She explains how a five-minute conversation with a gifted coach changed her entire outlook on training, racing, and life. We also dive into how Dina would react if someone breaks her marathon record while wearing a pair of the new generation of carbon-plated shoes, like the Nike Vaporfly Next. Her answer surprised us, but was very insightful, as you might expect from someone who authored a book entitled, Let Your Mind Run. Enjoy, and we'll see you out there. Well, good. And so I'd love to, I'd love to start out by... Um, hearing a little bit more about your early days. My, uh, my understanding is that you tried a couple other sports early on and you were not quite a natural at soccer and softball and some other things, but, but what were your early days like? Um, it sounded like oh. you grew up in a great space, great place for sports and being outdoors, but what, what were your earliest forays into sports? Yeah, and, and really it was just my parents really encouraging my sister and I just to be a part of sports so we could have better mentors and, and make good decisions growing up. Um, so that was their onus. It was for our self-esteem and for uh, decision making and knowing that sports offer a lot of great role models. So um, soccer was really big in Southern California. We, uh, my sister and I both played soccer, but I remember my, the only goal I scored in the season was in the first game and it was I didn't realize we switched directions at halftime. So I actually scored my goal for the other team. Like what a loser. And, um, and then later in the season, I remember a coach coming up to my mom and she remembers it very clearly. And maybe my memory is because she brings it up sometimes that a coach came up to her on the sidelines and said, is something wrong with your daughter? She seems to be getting worse as the season goes on. So um, just not my forte. All of my close friends went on to play on the club team. So I was on the sidelines on weekends cheering them on um, because I was not selected for those teams. And then, you know, I tried softball, but I was more into making dandelion necklaces for my teammates. And then that's important. Skating. Yes, yes, yes. Your accessories are very important when you're playing sports. Um, but then I tried ice skating and I actually really liked ice skating and was um, a little like locally competitive with it. Um, and we say ice skating in Southern California. So of course I'm competitive because not many people do it, but right. we did, we do have great ice skating rinks in Southern California. And I remember practicing this one morning and, and I was strapped in a harness because I was trying to do an axle. And so for safety first, um, trying it under, under a harness and my instructor had the other end of the, of the rope. And I just could not launch myself into the air skating backwards as fast as I can. Just, I wanted to like shrivel up instead of launch into the air. And so my instructor just got so frustrated. She walked off the ice and said, she's too skinny to be graceful. Anyway, I quit. And my mom just like clenched her heart. Like, oh my gosh, my daughter's self-esteem. Like I've got to get her into something I, to boost it. And, um, and so track was the answer to be able to, to run and everybody get their little participants ribbon and there's no cuts as far as who makes the team. But surprisingly, I loved it from the very first day I was out there. It seemed to, it seemed the great combination for me. It was very social. You weren't in the outfield by yourself to make those dandelion necklaces, True. but it was very social because I was running in a pack. Everybody seemed to be supportive and in a good mood from the coaches to the, to the runners. And then to just be let out on a trail and explore in the mountains, I was in my happy place for sure. That is so cool. And now I don't know if you've ever read anything by this author uh, named Dr. John Rady. Um, he's an amazing guy. He's written a couple of best-selling books. Some of it's on childhood ADHD, but he's done a lot on the benefit of sports for um, kind of mental growth. And even later in life, we can add brain cells by, by exercising. But it's so cool you bring that up because his, his amazing triple play is doing endurance sports outdoors in nature 
with a group. He's like, that is literally the best thing you can do for your brain. Well, it looks like I found it at the age of 11. So I'm really grateful, <laughs> really grateful for that. So no you, didn't need a, you didn't need a Harvard PhD to tell you that. You figured it out at 11. Well, yeah, with a little support from my, from my parents. But I'm happen, I'm happen to be reading a book right now called Nature. And it's all about the benefits oh. of nature and just what that, what that gives to us. So, um, so it, fa it falls in line with his study to be exercising in nature, socializing with a group. It's just part of that whole package that he had already figured out. Yeah, very cool. So, and that's the title of the book, Nature. We'll look yes. that up. All right. Yes. Uh, and so, and you you were able to run, my understanding is right out the back door of the school, right? Just outside the track, you could get into the Santa Monica Hills, right? Yeah, it was a, a beautiful location, but my whole life, my parents didn't do sports. So up until the age of 11, the mountains were just something we looked at. I didn't actually know you can hike and run and explore in them. So it was like, it was shocking to me to just get on this trailhead um, right there. I mean, it was my, it was, it ended up being my high school that we met at, but it was, um, wasn't the school I was yet going to. Okay. Um, just to have all those trails there was just so striking to me and to be, be able to take them in, in different directions even to explore. And so just in a, at a young age, being able to witness the seasons changing and, um, and the wildlife was just so intoxicating. Very cool. And then um, are you good about getting your daughter out? I think you have one, one daughter, right? Yes. One and daughter. Is, she, is she interested in heading out to the trails with you? She does not, she likes to hike with me. She loves to hike around. Um, running is not something she enjoys and I do not want to push it. I, I want it to be on her terms. But during this pandemic, um, I have emphasized my need to get out. And so she's actually gotten very uh, good during this pa the past nine months at riding a bike. And so she'll ride the bike next to me when I run in the morning, which I love. It's it's conversations that we have when we're out there on the bike path, on the roads, when we're biking and running next to one another, conversations that never happen around the table or in the home. So it really, it really is valuable time and, and very, a very different time spent together, despite the fact that we're together most of the day. Now she's into ski season, so she's actually skiing six to seven hours a day. Um, which is mind blowing to me um, that she can do that on the weekends. The weekday, she just does half day because she does her schoolwork here at home in the morning. And then she heads out for about four or five hours in the afternoon. But that's a lot of time in skis, but she loves it. Is she competitive? Uh, not competitive, um, not competitive. She does have a ski coach, so that she does meet up with her coach each of these days. Um, but the coach is very good about making it fun, but also pushing their limits and their comforts a little bit, which I think is also really good for them. Oh, perfect. And, you know, at that age, so you tried these other sports and maybe weren't, weren't the most graceful athletes and some of these other things you tried. But, you know, I'm a little biased. We have a 13-year-old daughter, and I just feel like, to try to go through the teenage years or middle school years as a girl, especially these days, um, without the grounding of sports or, or something you can fall back on, like, as you said, like that self-esteem and confidence. I mean, it sounds like that had a big impact on your life back then. Yeah. And, and I, I also think it was just um, reflecting on it, that sense of daily accomplishment that I might've fumbled in school in a few, in a few subjects and, um, and been awkward in other ways, but that sense of accomplishment, it didn't have to be a personal best that day. It could have just been running that seven mile loop, that big loop around the neighborhood and being like, oh my gosh, I'm in middle school or high school and I just ran seven miles, there's like a sense, even not dwelling on it, it's more of even a subconscious um, um, terms that, that it's, it's a huge accomplishment. A book that's on, on in, my, um, in my list to read right now is called Make Your Bed. And it was, it was actually, it, it came to me because it, it's about those little senses of accomplishments. Like if you wake up in the morning and you're still in your PJs, you haven't even had your coffee yet, but you make your bed subconsciously, you've already accomplished something. So how important is that, is that, that little act of tidying 
um, to, to get out on your day. And so the book is filled with things like that. Um, but I, I'm really excited to read it because it's how I picture running also, is that if we can get out and do that little, that little run in the morning, whether it's 20 minutes or an hour or two hours long, whatever our time affords, that that sense of accomplishment really does um, radiate in, in big ways throughout the rest of your day, giving you the right hormones and disposition to accomplish anything else you're looking for. That's great. It, that sounds, is that the one by the, I think he was a Navy SEAL commander or something and gave a great graduation speech. Is that the same guy? Is it written by a former Navy admiral? I don't even know that yet, but that is one of the things in making your bed that in the, in the military, they have you do that. Um, and, and the importance of making your bed in the military for that discipline. And uh, before you go to the chow hall and eat your, eat your lunch, be re rewarded with breakfast after making your bed. I, I think, I think it's by the, the same person I'm thinking of and okay. my wife, my wife had our, our three kids watch the speech and sadly it did not have an effect on making their bed. So they were, they were, <laughs> They're good kids in other ways, but making your bed is not, you know, it doesn't, doesn't raise to the top of their priority list the way it does ours. Yeah, they need, they needed a little, a little more nudge than that. Exactly. I was looking, looking up the author. Yeah, it is Admiral William McRaven. I think that's it. No, I'm looking, I, I'd love to hear your impressions of that, but, um, yeah. but no, that, that's when we'll, we try to link out to uh, great books and movies and ideas that we come across in these conversations to our readers, to the newsletter. So we'll, I'll make yeah. sure we mention that one too. Books are such a great way to just extend your education. It's, um, it's to me a, a, a daily privilege to sit down and, and read and, um, and continue growing as a person. It's part of why I wake up every morning. <laughs> Absolutely. So, and then if you fast forward, like thinking about that, um, kind of that mental sense of accomplishment. So you had an amazing career at the University of Arkansas. And then right after graduation, you, you had some pretty serious, I guess, self-doubt moments, or I don't know the best way to describe it, but you, you even considered giving up running, even though you had a promising pro career in front of you. How did that all come about? Yeah, I actually, it was interesting, um, even writing, writing my own book, reflecting on college, and it was, I was pretty hard on myself. I didn't feel like I had a very good college career, um, because I felt like I was um, given a scholarship and brought on by great coach Lance Harder to earn a national championship individually and for the team, and I never felt like I really um, reached, reached that, that height, and so I felt like my, if I reflect on my my college career it felt very disappointing in that aspect but then I look through at more of the finer details and I'm like oh my gosh I won a lot of SEC titles and I was a nine-time All-American like these are really these are really big accolades so why do I look on, on it with um, with such disdain or disappointment and it's because my expectations were higher so I thought if I couldn't even make it in college how on earth am I going to make it as a professional athlete it just didn't seem worthwhile but I also didn't want to step away from the sports from the sport on the sports terms I wanted to I really wanted to give it I feel like I might have been a little self um, um, self-deprecating and even self-sabotaging in college from the stress um, and just from my perspective the stress that it gave me to have um, to feel like I owed it to my coach and owed it to the program to do so much. And it was really the wrong, um, the wrong mindset to have. It should have been a privilege and, and, and a joy to be able to do that. So I kind of lost my joy of it all. And understanding that I wanted to step away from the sport after knowing I gave it everything I had because I could be a baker at any time. That was the other profession I was looking at. Um, I distributed some baked goods to a lot of to a lot of coffee houses and restaurants in in town. So to me, that was my win every day. And so um, so that was the direction I wanted to do. Um, my family was not entirely supportive of me doing that. Um, so I just decided they also didn't know how I was going to make it as a professional athlete either. But um, but I made that that choice to just give it everything I had for four years. The discipline and commitment that it took living the athlete's lifestyle, like my coach, my professional coach, Joe Vigil, preached all the time and really just um, became a blank slate and just absorbed all the information I could from rest and recovery to, to the mental side of it, believing in the program he laid out for me. Um, and he took care of that physical work. And it was my, my um, real, um, 
I guess, privileged to work on the mental side of it and see how that could apply to the work he was throwing at me, which was a lot. Um, and within just a couple months, I could not believe how strong I got physically and mentally. And that grew into three months and four months. So it was really um, an amazing ride to see how easy success can come to you when you buy into it and you put in the work and you have a committed focus. It was, um, it was a very big lesson for me. So, so what did Joe do differently? You had an amazing coach at Arkansas who's, who's legendary. But but what was it about what Joe was doing that clicked? Yeah, I think it was I think it was it was me coming to him ready to learn from him and him having a lifetime of knowledge to share. And so it was it was me listening and being open and it was and it was him sharing all that he had. And um, and I think it was a real um, beautiful combination that we we both enhanced each other in that moment um, when when I arrived in Alamosa. And it was really um, it was really him trusting, trusting me with that knowledge because it felt like a privilege to receive it. Here, this man just worked his entire life to be the coach that he is. And he just openly shared everything he learned with me. We had little classes in his house with the athletes that he was coaching at the time. And I absorbed it all and even asked for more. You said this about a book. Can I borrow that book and, and read it? And it was just, it was really just wanting to be a student because I feel like it was amazing to me when I landed in Alamosa, Colorado, how little was it wasn't even it was before Alamosa. It was in that five-minute phone call that that had me buy into to his program and want to move to Alamosa, that five minute phone call that I had been running since 11 years old. And in those five minutes realized I knew absolutely nothing about this sport. He was talking about adrenal cortical reserves and strength endurance versus endurance and speed and power output. And I was like, what does this even mean? And realizing that I had a lot to learn made me really excited to go explore that and see if I can apply it, um, it to, to a professional career. And that's where um, I think just, um, just being that, just having that door cracked open, that potential in my mind was super thrilling and exciting. And if my, if my beat up Jeep Wrangler could have driven any faster, I would have been in Alamosa a day earlier. But, um, but it was really an exciting, an exciting process to just see that possibility and then, and then run toward it. And so did the environment have something to do with it? It sounds like you kind of had gone back to this beautiful place, sort of back to your roots, were running in the hills and trails. Did that help? Yeah, um, really connecting to, to where my joy began as a runner, exploring new places, new territory, not getting caught up in splits and times yet, but just really um, exploring new territory, but also a new program was really exciting to me. Um, and it, it was really him just preaching that, you know, the time that you spend in your running shoes is not the only time that makes you great. It mm. is it is a it is a lifestyle it is a 24/7 job how you think and you eat and you sleep and even your um, your relationships your conscience he wanted to know if i slept well at night and i was like oh yeah i love to sleep i can sleep 10 hours a night and he said good that means you have a clean conscience and i thought what does your conscience have to do with running fast but learning how it is all part of the all part of the process because how we think creates, we have 75,000 thoughts a day. Some of us fewer, like maybe as a blonde, I have a few, few fewer than, than the average person, but 75,000 thoughts a day. If you can control a portion of those thoughts to serve you better, it creates a histochemical effect in our body that is going to carry us into the next thing we do and the next. So just really having fun, thinking of it as a game, really having fun with, with conditioning those thoughts to serve me and what I'm trying to accomplish. And so it's really been, um, it's been a lifelong journey. I thought it would last for four years, but it's really been a fun game to try to, to try to get the better and best out of myself each day, despite the fact that my fastest days are far behind me, I still wake up to, with that same enthusiasm every day. That's why there's a master's category. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't quite pay as well, but uh, yeah. So yeah. Cool. But the, the payoff emotionally and feeling fulfilled is definitely still there. Uh, and so how do you control those negative thoughts from creeping in? 
Uh, do you have do you have mantras or their tricks? Do you meditate? How, how do you how do you make sure that you're not stressing yourself out and, and letting the negative creep in? Yeah, I think I think it's fine for that first thought to creep in that oh no or why me or or whatever that happens to be seriously 2020 again whatever whatever that first thought is is we can't control that one but. But if we really just um, pay attention to it, like, ooh, that didn't feel good. Traffic is a big one for me. I like get hijacked by frustration when I'm sitting in traffic. And so thinking, okay, like, can I fix this? Because if I can fix it, let's go ahead and fix it so I'm not frustrated. But if I can't fix it, then I need to fix my attitude. I think Maya Angelou, the great Maya Angelou said that. If, if, um, if something's disturbing to you, then fix it. And if you can't fix it, fix your perspective or fix your attitude. And so I really take that to heart. And so, okay, that thought really isn't serving me great right now. So how can I find a solution or steer myself out of this or maybe just put my mind in a better place? When I learned that our mind can't multitask. I, I kind of fought the fought that that um, that science. Like, oh, I think I'm an exception to this scientific rule. But then realizing, like, if my mind can't multitask, then let's put my mind in a better place toward gratitude or joy or um, or or strategy and success and um, and finding a way out of that. So really, not berating myself for feeling you're feeling frustrated or angry or some of these harder emotions, not berating myself for doing it, but trying to sit in it and understand it a little better. Sometimes even redefining what that, what that emotion means to me and, um, and moving on from there. So having fun with playing with that thought to help it serve me better. And this is, this is probably letting a negative thought creep in somehow. So maybe this is a counterproductive question, but <laughs> if you, if you rewound, would your I mean, amazing career at Arkansas, nine-time All-American, um, multiple SEC titles, um, if you rewound and sort of knew what you knew uh, four years after you entered Arkansas, could your career have been better? I definitely think my career at Arkansas would have been better, but I might not have been so desperate and open-minded to learn uh, so much if if that weren't the case. So I believe our paths are are there for a reason, but... I think being so hard on myself and um, and getting to a place that felt so low um, emotionally and uh, and critically, you know, I think a lot of college graduates feel that way, right? They graduate and everybody asked them their entire senior year, "What are you going to do after you graduate?" That was the most um, that was the most um, a blood boiling question to me like I don't know does everybody have to know like can't I just move back home with my family for right. a little bit and figure this out um but that was a hard a really hard question to answer and um and so I think by 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 getting that question repeatedly and not having an answer had me dwelling internally so much and kind of hitting an emotional low to be like you know what I'm just going to try this I am going to pack my bags. I'm going to follow this man that just inspired me um, with a five minute phone call and, and just give it four years to see how strong I can get. And once I see that potential, I can move on to the next thing. And before I knew it, I just kept climbing and climbing. And it was probably 15 years of, of hitting PRs time and time again before I got to the, to the height of my career. And that was a pretty great ride. So, and it was pretty quick. I mean, you, so you qualified, you graduated in 96 and you wound up qualifying for the 2000 Olympics in the marathon. I have, well, oh, sorry. That was, that's right. That was 10,000 meters. Yeah. Um, so that was a pretty nice progression, right? In just those yeah. four years. And, and to feel that, to, I mean, I saw that progress within a month of making the right decisions, you know, taking care of myself, getting, the, getting proper nutrition and rest and being excited, emotionally invested and excited about this program that I was a part of. I was a far better athlete one month into being in Alamosa than I ever dreamed I could be as a professional athlete. So I, I was already on a high with one month of being there. And then seeing that progress continue was super, was super exciting. But I'll say that it was really, I mean, the high points and some of those, those wins and personal bests get us excited because it's positive feedback. But I think, um, some of those harder moments, that first Olympic team when I didn't even make the finals of the 10,000 meters in the Olympic Games. So here I just had 
I, I earned the Olympic trials 10,000 meter record and, and, and won those trials and then went overseas and ran PRs in the 1500 all the way up to the, to the 10K and then the Olympics come and I don't even make the finals of the 10,000. Like, how embarrassing. Like walking out on the field with such pride wearing this uniform, they don't even have semifinals in the 10,000 anymore because it's such a grueling distance to have to do twice with it. Twice, right, right. In the, with the span of the games, but, um, but I didn't even make the finals. And, um, and so that was embarrassing, but that launched me into being committed the next four years. Um, it was another event in the marathon because I had found my stride there. But the reason why I even tried the marathon distance was to gain strength for the 10,000 meters so that I could be competitive on the world stage. So um, it was that that low point that really got me like, okay, what now what do I have to do? What do I need to add? Is it just another four years stronger or can I be a little more disciplined in other areas of my life? So finding that and it's been so fun, even now. The fact that I'm I'm not getting faster, I'll never run 219 or or better again. But knowing that I can still find strategies to be better is really exciting, and it's it's why I still get out in my running shoes each day. And so, how long did it take for for that bounce back to occur? So, big disappointment at the 2000 Olympics. Um, 99% of all people would be thrilled to be at the Olympics, but um, I understand you have higher standards. But how long did that that wasn't an instant recognition of, hey, here's, you know, here's a, a real face the moment sort of instance. It must have taken you a while. You must have been bummed out for a while and then bounced back. Yeah, but I, but I think it was a, a motivator. My 2001 season was great hitting, hitting the roads and the track. And it's because I was, I was motivated. I didn't want, I think um, as a runner, it seemed so long because I didn't understand disappointment really well that that you would ride that disappointment until some win or personal best told you you were temporarily good enough until your next disappointment. Uh -huh. um, but understanding like Coach Vigil shared with me um, in his vast knowledge that being disappointed doesn't mean that you failed and that you're a failure. It means you're invested and you care. So let's keep working. And I just loved how he helped me redefine some of those harder emotions that, that bubble up in, as a professional athlete. because. Um, and in life, like we, we have expectations and we sometimes let ourselves down, but to understand that that's just because we are buying into this and we want more um, is a really beautiful observation as opposed to feeling like a disappointment. So it's learning, it's learning and relearning those words, but being able to, to redefine disappointment has helped me redefine other hard emotions in my life, like grief or loneliness and, and to be able to define them on my own terms so that I can be in the driver's seat of my life at all times is a really beautiful tool to have. And, and how do some of those lessons apply to some of our readers and listeners who are 30 mile per week recreational runners who maybe are thinking about doing a half marathon next year? How, you're not going to be able to go full V Hill uh, as a, you know, a 40 year old person running 30 miles a week, but, but how, what are the key lessons there that apply to those kind of amateur runners? Yeah, I mean, I think persistence is beautiful. Resiliency, better yet. Um, I think of resiliency as, as being able to get back into your running shoes, whether you have um, whether you've had a disappointment or whether you just hit a big PR and you're on this emotional high and what's going to get you back in those shoes. So resiliency, I think, comes from both of those areas, just continuing to work at it, whether you're having good or bad days, it's continuing that really allows us to grow and, um, and continue, continue the process of, of learning and growing in our running shoes. But um, I think uh, I think we we all if we just if we just take running for what it is we're missing we're missing the beauty of what running can offer us if we get injured and just think oh it's just an over an overtraining issue um, I believe that our bodies are entirely capable of doing fantastic and big and big things. So an injury is, is a lesson. There's a lesson in there. And so to learn what, what that imbalance is or what you might need nutritionally um, is, um, is, is, where the, the, is, is what we should be searching for. It's not just an injury because you're pushing your limits. It's an injury because something's wrong. And so figuring out what it is you need to do, whether it's an exercise or, or adding, adding something 
something um, nutritionally. My, my big thing is vitamin D. I have a lot of skin hmm. cancer problems, so I can't get sun, um, which is a job hazard in the running world. Yeah. But I have to get that vitamin D nutritionally, making sure I'm eating those yolks from farm-raised eggs because they have a really condensed amount of vitamin D in them, and and kale and leafy greens and cold water fish, like all those. Unfortunately, pickled herring is one of them, and I'll I'll stomach it just for the sake of vitamin D. But to me, getting it through foods is is much better than than taking any sort of supplement or pill. Absolutely. Um, so really, just just getting those lessons, and it's really really important even when there's a hard emotion in there that we need to, to reteach ourselves or relearn the definition of. And then, so taking a lot of those lessons um, and some disappointment from 2000, four years later, totally different story and you're an Olympic medalist. So th those two things are connected, I assume, right? You had to prune back the tree a little bit to, to have it grow stronger. Absolutely. And it was, it was looking with Coach Vigil, um that we're stronger together. So back to the beginning of our conversation on that, on that camaraderie and that, and that group. And so in, um, after the 2000, 2000 Olympics, where I trained in Alamosa, Colorado, um, moving to Mammoth Lakes, California, where I still live today, 19 years later, um, um, collaborating with Meb Kepleski and his coach Bob Larson, and really creating a powerhouse team here to push each other. And we really—it was more of a training camp, not a uh, not a 365-day living situation. Although Meb and I committed to living here, um, just gathering the best runners from around the nation and training here. It was Abdi Abdi Rahman who just made his fifth Olympic team. Um, it was Amy Rudolph who's a 5,000 meter American record Amazing. holder at the time. We just had Jen Rhimes who's still running in the in uh, masters divisions to to this day. Just bringing all these people together to push each other um, because we realized watching the East Africans that that's what they do. They get mm. together these training camp situations and just push each other every day. And so we did that day in and day out. Um, when it got closer to 2004, I even hired a couple more men to come in to, to Mammoth and push me every day. And it was the funnest training cycle of my entire career up until that point, because it was so fun to just push each other and see who could break each other at the, to the top of the hill and really just having fun with it. And then getting together and dining the, the um, later in the afternoon after the ice baths and massages um, were done. So it was really a fun, um, that final summer was such a fun uh, buildup um, with Meb, knowing that we were the whole point of even being here in Mammoth for those four years was to have our sights on Olympic medals because the distance runners in 2000 in Sydney had a very poor showing. Our sprinters did well. Right, but right. Distance runners had a very poor showing and we wanted to change that. And so being able to, um, to have that focus, um, try to carry U.S. distance running on our shoulders during those games was a big privilege. And it made, it made, our, made our purpose very uh, much broader than just about ourselves, which I think is what played into um, those, those goals coming to fruition. And, uh, and Athens was tough, right? I mean, there was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit on the day of the race. Yeah, I remember Abdi helping me carry the cooler in the Olympic Village because um, his 10,000 meters was already done. Um, he was helping me carry the cooler that had my ice vest in it, helped me carry it to the from the um, from the dining hall to the bus. And he had sweat just dripping down his face. And he said, man, someone's going to die out there. And I said, Abdi, Phidippides did die out here in Greece running <laughs> running his, his marathon journey to claim victory over the Spartans. So it's quite possible someone might, but I don't intend that person to be me. <laughs> so... It was hot, 101 degrees when the bus dropped us off in the town of Marathon. Incredible. But it sounds like th this attitude that you'd built over the prior really eight years, you needed it for a day like that. Yeah. And, and really, it was about um, in, in the training itself, we, were, we trained not just to beat the competition, but we also trained to beat the heat and the hills. Mm. So 
every day Meb and I were overdressed in practice. It might be 80 degrees out here on a sun-drenched dry course in Mammoth and we had long sleeve and tights on and um, Meb even sometimes had a beanie cap on. Um, and sometimes Meb would even spin on the bike in the sauna at the gym wow. in the evening. So, um, so he took it a step, a step further than I did, but just really feeling like we were prepared for the heat. We were prepared for the hills because it's hard not to run hills when you live and train in Mammoth Lakes. And then training for the competition, we really felt like we were we couldn't have done anything better for our fitness than how we trained that summer. And it felt like um, it was the camaraderie that helped because we were in it together and excited together. Um, but also being amazed that we put in so much hard work and our bodies just kept taking it and we wake up in the morning ready for more. And it amazed us every day, but we talked about it. So it was good. It was, it kind of like um, fed each other's good vibes, you know, each day that we met up. So uh, what was that emotion like when they put a, an Olympic medal around your neck? Yeah, um, it was great. I actually have it sitting here on my, on ah. my desk right now because <laughs> I, I host experiences that, um, that I share it with, um, with, with corporations. So, um, so it's right here on my desk. And it was, <laughs> it was incredible um, and more incredible um, because it felt like you know, as a runner, it looks like we're pretty alone out there, but it is such a collaborative process from Absolutely. training with Meb to the three men I hired, having our supportive team around us who were training, not for, not, maybe not for the marathon, but, um, but for the, the, um, the track. And um, so it just felt so collaborative in the process, let alone having our families so supportive of us and our coaches so bought in and disciplined to be away from their wives for the time that they were wow. here in Mammoth, um, getting, seeing us through to this time, um, agents and our, our families in the stands. Anyway, it was just an amazing collaborative process. So it felt a little self-indulgent to have that metal draped around our necks when you're like, wait, everybody else, come on in for this, for this photo op. Right. Um, but it was, it was beautiful, but I think what the medal really stands for is that we weren't born medalists. We, they were really, and we weren't born with the grit and determination and perseverance and endurance and all those other things that went into it. They're really traits we had to work so hard at, looking at other athletes we admired, looking at friends and family we looked up to and what traits um, they embodied that, that we admired in them. Even characters in books, if we're going to bring it back to books, yeah. and characters in books and novels that, that you appreciate and practicing those traits until they become part of who you are. And so I think more so than ever, that's what the medal represents to me. And what about family? So I, now as a parent, you probably look back differently in thinking about your parents' experience in Athens. I assume they went and, and saw you and your sister and probably. My, my mom's voice is the only one I heard in that stands of 45,000 people. Literally, could you hear her? Yes, yes. She was screaming, woohoo! And I heard her over everybody, but it was more of like an emotional shrill, you know? But that, uh, that had to be an absolute magical moment for them. I mean, you've had so many other great career moments, but, but that, that had been pretty darn special. Yeah, and they're, they're always there. They were there at the disappointment after Sydney, and then we went off on a family vacation afterwards. So they're there through the good and the bad, or the good and the learning experiences. There you go. And, um, and I remember when um, my co-author, Michelle Hamilton, and I were writing, and I was giving her chapters, and she would read it. And this one day, she finally called and said, Dina, we can't end every chapter with your parents having sharing a meal, a celebratory meal with you. Pick one, pick one chapter that you want to celebrate that meal. And so I chose Athens because it was so special to finally get out of drug testing late at night and be in this skimpy uniform trying to flag down a, a cab to take me to the restaurant my parents were, um, were gathered in. And finally, my agent, Ray Flynn, stood in the middle of the road and like would not let this cab driver pass. And we got in and he drove us down this um, to this back alley where there's this beautiful restaurant. We ate outdoors. I got a standing ovation when I walked in because there were screens all over the place. And despite it being 11 o'clock at night, um, everybody was dining and watching the Olympics. So they had just watched the race unfold and highlights of the day. And so, um, so we were serenaded quite a bit that night, um, but we, we dined until the sun came up. It was great. Very so that, cool. 
that's the meal that made it because it wasn't just my parents. It was my family and Coach V Hill and obviously Andrew, cousins even, and the family that my family was staying with. So it was a pretty large table to celebrate with. And, um, and the food and wine flowed until the morning time. <laughs> well deserved. And then, uh, I don't want to fast forward through these, but, but then the, the party kept rolling, right? In 05 and 06, you won Chicago, you won at London, set an American record that still stands this day. Um, but were, were that, did those two years flow pretty smoothly post-Athens? Yeah, and I think, um, I think it started in, in 2003 at that, that, you know, I've had this, this role model in the sport of distance running with Joan Benoit Samuelson. Sure. And finally being in a position where I was going to go after her American record seemed so surreal to me because I actually became a runner at the age of 11, the same year she won her, her Olympic gold. And so um, ah. super inspiring um, at the very beginning of, of what of a sport that I was falling in love with. And so to be in a position to break her American record in 2003, when I got third in the, Chicago, in the London Marathon, um, Paula Radcliffe and Catherine Dereba beat me, Paula breaking the world record and Catherine breaking her national record and me being able to break um, um, Joan's record in that same race. It was a good, a good day for racing. And, um, and then the next year to, to, win, um, to win an Olympic medal. But then when it came um, after that, I was like, this is so weird that I have the American record and a medal in a distance I have never won a race in. And so that became my goal. Like, let's win a darn race. Like, it's going to feel really nice to have this finish line break across your chest. So that was my mindset at the time was just like, what's that next, where's that next thrill going to come from? What's going to get me motivated to get out the door and continue putting on this, this brutal work, right? It's a, you know, a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of hard work to put in and to get emotionally up for every day, which is why I take such big breaks at the end of a season because I do invest so much emotionally. Um, what's gonna get me excited to get out the door and do this? And um, in 2020, it's been virtual races, but then it right. was, it's okay, let's finally win one of these things. And then 06 London, was, did, was that just one of those days where everything went well, you got in a flow state and, or, or was it you know challenging and, and gritty right to the end? It was, it was a point where I realized I was at the height of my career. I realized that this was an opportunity that I, I, can, do, I can do something really great. And it, the hardest part of that entire buildup was deciding, do I want to lower my American record, run under sub 220, which only a couple of women had done. Takahashi had just done it, the first woman to ever break 220. Um, so do I want to run under 220, which I knew I was capable of doing, or do I want to go win the Boston Marathon? And I reflect on that time of what, how amazing is it in, to be in your own head and feeling so supremely confident that your, that your decision for the year is, do I want to put an American record out of reach or do I want to go win the Boston Marathon? I knew both were completely capable. I didn't question whether one was possible. It was which one which one seems better? And it was such a hard decision that I actually let my dog make it. So I put stuffed animals out in the driveway. The bear represented Boston and her moose represented London. And I opened the door and said, go get your baby. And she came back with the moose. So we started training for London. And that's, I, 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 I reflect on that time, not out of arrogance, but what a wonderful place to put yourself in, to just keep working and working and working and be in a space where you get to decide, decide between two totally amazing um, accomplishments. And, um, and so we, we, we ran London and it was a great buildup and the race itself was great, but it was steady. You know, I knew I had to just lock into that, that's that, um, that 519 per mile pace and just keep that going until the finish line. So it was a very calculated race. Um, but again, it was just, um, just being a part of this really great, um, couple of years where my body just kept taking the taking the work because I because thankfully to coach V Hill I also knew how to rest and recover really well so I feel like in my career I didn't have a lot of injuries or little nagging pain so I can get in that consistent training year in and year out yeah great um and then 
I know you're very generous with your time and you've written a really thoughtful book that's influenced a lot of people. Um, but think about it now as, um, as, uh, as a parent and someone who's married to a successful coach, um, what's your prescription for kind of youth athletics in general and how do we keep attracting more kids to this sport and, you know, across the country, athletic budgets are being cut and, you know, they're, uh, you know, most towns in America don't even have little league baseball, which, you know, a lot of places take for granted or youth soccer. So what's, I mean, running, it seems like such a perfect antidote to that, right? It's super healthy. It's combating childhood obesity. It's promoting self-confidence and self-awareness. But if you're, you know, if, if uh, President Biden calls you on January 21st and said, Dina, we need you to figure out youth health in this country, what would you do? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously it's critical and it's, it's so on a socioeconomic level, it is, it is um, available to, to everyone. I think the New York Roadrunners do a great job with Absolutely. programs, um, but, but it, is, it, is, it is part of what's going to make our country successful in the future that, you know, it, 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 is, it, it seems counterintuitive that when budget restrictions get, get squeezed, that PE is the first thing to go. And then school in general, let's cut the school budgets. And, and so that it seems counterintuitive that we're going to invest in our future. We would take away sports and then education. Like, what are we thinking? How could we so, so self-sabotaging? Right. And so I would say really prioritizing that. I really think during this pandemic, one of the most beautiful things that came out of it is, is that physical activity has been deemed essential and thank goodness, right? That people have picked up the sport of running, families are starting to do it. And I think maybe the pandemic is, is really gonna show the rewards of, of that, of, of families getting out and being active together. We have managed to the, the track and field facility that Andrew and I put in years back. Thankfully, people used it responsibly that it was open during the entire pandemic. And there was families sharing each side of the soccer field, one family kicking goals on another side while the other family was there, people using different different lanes and um, to be able to get their walks or their runs in. So I feel really, um, I feel really good that, that people chose to use their time that way because it was cost effective to get out and just get some fresh air. Um, but also um, families finding that, wow, this really, this really reshaped our family dynamic and, and helped. Um, so seeing it on a, on a small community level, I can only hope that it is going to be seen on a, on, a, on a more national level. And to be able to, to emphasize physical fitness in our schools, but also programs and youth programs. I feel very fortunate that I had a youth track program growing up, but it no longer exists. So how do we get uh. more of those up and in, in communities, um, even if they end up being virtual um, for some time, um, just to make sure kids are moving. It, it, it pains me to think the other thing is also happening that kids are being left at home and they're just in front of their computers playing video games. Um, and, and so if both stories are true, let's, let's, let's promote the one that's showing the, the better results and, and really promote our children's movement and, and making them aware. One of the things I did last year when we had our youth, our youth camps up and running um, in the summer months, one of the things that I was my favorite exercise was this one day the kids ran a mile really hard on the track and they got some prizes afterwards for doing it. But then the sprinklers went on in the baseball fields and I said, everybody go, go refresh themselves and go run in the sprinklers. And they were running around like crazy after they just were like on the track, laying down, exasperated, right, right. being tired, screaming, running through the sprinklers. And then I said, okay, everybody on the infield. And we laid on the, on the synthetic infield and I made them all, all um, um, uh, go, get in a ring, a big circle, and then lay with their heads in the middle of the circle. So all their legs were hanging, were fanning out. And I put on with the speaker, the Headspace app and made them meditate for three minutes, um, following the guidance Great. Um, of the Headspace app. And when we were done, I said, do you see what we all just accomplished? We just ran super hard. We were ex we were totally exhausted, and then we ran and played even more through the sprinklers. And then you laid down and you quieted your mind. 
can you believe how much control you have over your emotions? So next time you're sitting in class and you feel really shaky and jittery, save it for the playground. And when you're out on the playground, run around like crazy. But then when you come back, know that you can quiet yourself and focus and listen to work. So just showing, kind of applying that to real life. And I think that's, that's what running has given me is that it's taught me a lot. But what good is what good are those lessons if we're not also applying it to real life? So making that application, being that deep thinker, that critical thinker that can apply things to other areas of your life and to be able to give that to children to show them, gosh, you just ran that mile. It hurts so badly, but you know how good you feel right now? That's because your body released these endorphins and you feel superhuman. You can do anything you put your mind to. So letting them know that there's those connections so that they could see the value of getting out and, and moving their bodies. This is inspiring. All right, I need to cut the interview short. I'm going for my second run right now. <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, so I wanted to switch gears for just a second and get your view. I'm sure you saw what happened last weekend in Valencia and, um, and all the, the world records dropping and a big part of that press story, of course, are the new carbon plated shoes. And for the men, uh, Adidas finally got a win over Nike and uh, the new world half marathon record is set by somebody wearing the Adidas carbon plated shoes. I know you've been an ASICs athlete for a long time. ASICs has a version of this. Um, your, your American record, you know, will probably fall one day, right? Um, how will you feel if someone breaks your record by five seconds and they're wearing these high tech shoes that have been proven to improve performance by one to 4%? Yeah. Um, I, so I think it's two, I'm going to answer it in two separate ways. Good. Um, one is that we, we are in an entirely new era of this sport. We're, we're just in a different sport. In a year where we have been very slight of races, I sit down in front of my computer expecting to see a world record or national records being broken because that's just where, where we are because of the new shoe technology. Um, it is a performance enhancing shoe. Um, and Sarah Hall will be wearing the newest version of the A6 shoe in attempt to break my American record um, coming up in this, um, in this uh, marathon project. Um, she's definitely, um, from what it looks like in, in her training in this shoe, she's capable of doing that. But um, so I do feel like we are an entirely different er new era of, of records and sports, that the sport is now not just about um, human fitness, but also about technology. Um, which is which is fine. It's part of progress of the sport. It's getting people to watch it with intrigue, starting with Kipchoge's breaking two hours yeah, with great point. Um, with carbon plate stacks, which act as a spring forward. Um, so, is that also going to start being acceptable to have springs in our shoes, and then maybe motors in the back of our shoes that are dubbed to like cool off our feet, but actually have a little jet propulsion. Who knows what direction we're going? That might be the next phase, but um, I should have patented that before I talked about it. Um, but in, in my mind, as far as, as far as my record is concerned, it mattered. Joan, Benoit rec Joan Benoit's record mattered when I was chasing it. And my record mattered the moment I was able to pursue it and claim it in that, in that 2003 race. Um, the record mattered again when I lowered it because that was what got me out the door to put in the training, the carrot that motivated me to lower that record. And it mattered the day I broke it. It hasn't mattered since. It, mm. it hasn't mattered since that day. It, it helped bring out the best in me and that's what mattered. And so it's been for the taking ever since. I, unless I had like some sort of bonus in my contract that I got some like huge bonus every year. I got to keep the record, right? I there you go. That's that, like should have written that in, but um, but it 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 stopped mattering year seventeen years ago. So um, and I think Paula Radcliffe has had a similar outlook, right? I think she, I have not seen her complaining or or whining about. Oh well, yeah, my record was broken, but the shoes, the shoes. Right. I think in the in the time it was, it was just shocking. Like oh my yes. god, like. We did, I did not see that record going so going so low that day, and um, and so that was shocking. Um, I think even Bridget Koske was was shocked by how fast she ran that day. And if the shoes are shocking the athletes themselves, that's a that's a big tell in and of itself. But um, 
So I think it's shocked, but we're done being shocked. I think, yeah. I think now we just assume it. I sit in front of the computer this past weekend. I assumed world records were going to be broken. I didn't know like the top four and five people were going to break it, yeah. but, um, but I sat down assuming the record was going to be broken. So you, you don't have a problem with the technology improvement within reason. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think reason is out the window now. I, I, I don't think, I don't think it's reasonable, but if we're going to do it, then let's just, let's just keep beefing up these shoes and seeing, seeing how far we can go where the human body can handle it. Like yeah. until we, until the human body starts breaking down because the sh we can't keep up with the shoes. Let's keep going. Yeah. We might as well, if we're, if we're here, if we're breaking down those barriers, we might as well just keep having fun with it and allowing the shoes, shoe, um, the shoe companies to just have this fun little war with each other. I love it. Positive attitude. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, one quick question for you, then we'll, uh, we'll hit you with a couple even quicker questions. But um, I know you've, you've put a lot of thought into, um, into nutrition um, and recovery, but what's your, for again, for one of our readers, 35 to 45 year old, 30 mile a week runner um, wants to get better, healthier, faster. What's, what is an ideal day of nutrition look like for that person? Yeah, I mean, I'll just keep it easy. It doesn't yeah. matter what time of year, whether I'm on a break, trying to peak for something, my focus is on quality. And um, it resonates in a, in a everything, everything I feel, every decision we make resonates internally in, in different ways, depending on that choice. And if I am feeding myself quality food all day, every day, subconsciously i'm thinking i'm deserving of quality food so that is boosting my self-worth and my self-esteem wow. and my productivity so to me it's all about quality i'm eating cookies we made a tray of fudge yesterday and i ate a lot of it with with an extra <laughs> cup of coffee in the day but it's good coffee and the ingredients in the fudge are high quality ingredients the organic and fair trade um 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 responsibly sourced ingredients so if i if i am if I'm going to eat anything throughout the day, I just want to make sure it's quality. I'm not going to go devour a sleeve of cookies from the, from the grocery store, but I'll buy ingredients to make a good batch of cookies and eat it. And um, I love pizza, but I'm not going to, not going to eat. Um, well, I'm not going to put a, any brand under the bus right now, but I'm going to roll out pizza dough from my sourdough starter, roll out some pizza dough, and I'm going to put on some great toppings, even make a pesto sauce for it with arugula from the garden and take some veggies from the produce box and, and roast them to put on top of it. Like I, I just, I, well, I love being in the kitchen and, and creating food, but I always want to start with real high quality ingredients. I love that thought. That's, that is a simple way to think about it. Yeah. Cool. And, and for most kids, I just, for, for children, some families come to me for advice, just add more veggies, find more veggies that your kids right. are going to sneak eating them in. More, they're eating a few more veggies. They're not going to be reaching for the, for the other things that, that might not be as quality driven. Love it. Um, so uh, we'll hit you with a couple really quick questions here. We've done some of our other guests, which is, which has been fun. So um, favorite movie of all time. Oh, Steel Magnolias. Ah, <laughs> that's a good one. I love it. No one has said that yet. Classic. I love it. So it's not, not Chariots Fire or something. It's or... very weird. It's very weird that I also like Fight Club because they're very different movies. Um, Fried Green Tomatoes is another one. But okay, you just said one, so I can't keep going. Oh, that's a good list. That's a good okay. list. Uh, favorite book of all time. Not allowed to say your own, which we, <laughs> we, will, we will give a plug for, which is an amazing book. No, and we'll no, link to no. it in our... The Art of Learning, The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. He's a master chess player. Really? And that application's beyond chess? Yes. And that's why I love him. He uses everything in life as a motivation and is always challenging himself with new things. He's kind of like a Tim Ferriss um, that he, he just uses everything as, as motivation. So not only is he like the real life Bobby Fischer, but he's also a double black belt in Taekwondo. He's just like just absorbs everything around him to learn and grow as a human being. So it's motivated me to do the same. Love it. Um, if are you morning runner, midday runner, evening runner? Whenever I can do it. Really? Okay. So you're not religious about you have to get this in at 6am. No. And even, um, even last week, this is an example. Last week, my teammate Grace, who just ran a huge PR in a 5,000 in, um, in, in um, Orange County last week. Um, 
she waited for me because I had a really busy day from morning to night, had a really busy day. And, um, and so she waited for me to do her second run that day. And we did it in the dark on a full moon. Oh. And I had never done that before. And it was so rewarding. So I don't think it's, uh, to me, it doesn't matter when I get out. It is always rewarding to get out no matter the time of day, but I get no matter when I do it, there's a blessing in it somewhere. So it's fun no matter the time. I love it. Um, headphones, no headphones, music, podcast, nothing. Yeah. When I'm on the treadmill, definitely listen to, to books on tape, podcasts, music. The music has to have a really good beat to it. But when I'm outside, I like to take in everything from the sound of my footfalls to, to my breathing, to nature. Um, I just like to absorb the whole experience. Very cool. And you still get some trail runs in? Yes, I love. That's probably my favorite style of running is running on the trails. Oh, good, good, good. It's wonderful. We've we've been banging this drum for a while. Where, where people, where trail running has this connotation of ultras, which it doesn't have to be. You can go for a two mile trail run, and it and it's a great experience, right? It doesn't have to be a fifty mile run over fourteen thousand yeah. foot peaks. I have two favorite trail runs here. One is a two mile loop around Horseshoe Lake, um, just a mile from my house. So two mile loop around that lake. And the other one is an 18 mile run um, that touches into Yosemite National Park and comes back. Um, but a gorgeous, stunning run. I, took a, I, I try to take a teammate there um, once a year when their training, when their training can, can afford a trail run like that. Oh, very cool. Uh, and last question, if you can have dinner with one person living or deceased, who would it be? It would be Maya Angelou. Oh. I just think her mind is so open, positive, beautiful. Um, she always has a good perspective. And so I would love to dine with her. That is excellent. You're the first person to say that. That is an yeah. excellent choice. <laughs> Dina, you are such a good sport to spend time with us. Thank you so much. This is great stuff. And, uh, and we, will, we will for sure link out to your book and um, a couple of the other books and movies you referenced. So, uh, but it's a great conversation. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. It's always fun. Have a good one. All right. Take care. You too.